It's said that your real life begins where your comfort zone ends. Well, it's about to get real as we have radically authentic conversations to help you thrive in your personal and professional life while navigating the twists and turns of being human. Buckle up, because this might get uncomfortable. Starts right now with Whitney Lordson. Today, I'm sitting down with Dr. Sam Zand and looking forward to the many directions this conversation can go in. One thing that we started talking about that might not be super related to the main focus of this episode, but I think can really help get us there in some interesting ways. Sam and I were talking about social media and just very lightly mentioning how when you don't use social media or even a digital device a lot, you can feel a bit disconnected, but in a positive way. (laughs) And I would love to hear, I was saving this question, Sam, for the recording, because you said that you don't have cell service. And I'm curious, was that a conscious effort? Did that happen accidentally? Like, And what does that look like for you not having cell service? It's an interesting place to start. Let's dive in. Thanks for having me. And yeah, I'm I'm a psychiatrist. I moved from my practice in Las Vegas out to Puerto Rico in the jungle where we have a wellness center. It's a beautiful property on the river. Wake up, have a river plunge, meditation, breath work, yoga. We bring people out here to do ketamine therapy, group therapy, equine therapy. And a lot of the reason we set it up here in Puerto Rico in the middle of the mountains is to disconnect, is to have that digital detox. And so it wasn't intentional that I don't have cellular service, but just so happens that this property, we can't capture any cell service. We do have Starlink, so they're the area where guests can come and use their Wi-Fi. But the villas where they stay don't have Wi-Fi or cellular service, which is honestly, in this day and age, I think more of a luxury. And so to be able to set up your arrangements at home and come out here and stay for three days, five days, seven days, and choose when to let society interfere with your healing and and your happiness rather than just have that in your pocket at all times. It's a magnificent reset. A lot of our guests actually intentionally, they lock up their cell phones and they just don't even look at it for five days. For myself personally, before I even moved here, I used to go on a river trip every year, whitewater rafting, where you camp for five nights and there is never any cell service. So it's really, truly a five-day detox. And it's probably the healthiest thing that I make sure to keep up with every year. So it's definitely intentional and I think so nourishing for the soul to disconnect a little bit. I can see the benefits of the five day, but for you, since you're just in immersed in the space with not having that much of a choice, as you put it, it sounds like it's an ongoing thing. You just happen to have access to the internet when you need it. But in other words, what's the difference between like doing something temporarily for a five-day detox versus that's your whole lifestyle. And how long have you been doing this too? What has that been like over that period of time? Yeah, I'll tell you, the option of having Wi-Fi almost takes away the purpose. <laughs> and so sometimes we just have to get into the river, you know, we have to get into the into the trees and just escape the property a little bit too, because there's always that temptation to go and check the email and you start to realize it more. I think more than anything, you start to notice how impulsive that habit is to grab your phone and then 
have to pause and say, oh, I don't have service. What am I even doing? And unlearning that habit, we've all become cyborgs. And for better or for worse, I think in mental health, we're not talking enough about electronic hygiene. We're not talking enough about how electronics can help you in your mental health. And they can really just harm you and help and help the decline of distraction and dopamine desensitization and all these things that we're aware of. It's become part of who we are. So I think not having cell reception parts of the day probably makes a lot of my colleagues upset because it's hard to get in touch with me, <laughs> but it definitely helps with my own mental health. First of all, I love the term electronic hygiene. I don't think I've ever heard that before, but that might be a new go-to for me, thanks to you. I was telling you about having used social media very much, very light. I don't have the apps on my phone anymore. And that's a big deal for me with my lifestyle. But that was like a gateway or a first step towards my overall electronic hygiene because that was the majority of what I was doing on my devices. And when I stepped away from social media, I really noticed the dopamine connection there. I mean, I went through a feeling of withdrawal. I didn't know what to do as much with my time. And that pointed out how much it was taking up for me. And it was a big wake up call. And now I'm better able to be mindful of my phone usage or device in general because I don't have that same reason that I used to have. I would say like, oh, I'm just going to go check for messages. I'm going to go check to see how some post I put up is doing. Or I'm just going to go on there for entertainment. Once I took all that away, I noticed a few things. One was that I felt less connected to my phone in a very positive way. Now it's mostly to check like, I don't know, more important things, I would say. I use my phone when I'm away from my computer to check emails or if there's a text message or something coming through or to do basic things like various apps. But even the basic apps, I realized I was kind of overusing, like checking the weather all the time. Like, do I need to check the weather multiple times a day? <laughs> I like to look at the finances, like my stocks or my savings, my, you know, how much high yield savings account interest did I get? Like, I love looking at that stuff, but I don't really need it. And stepping away from social media made that need versus want more clear for me. Did you feel the same way? given that without the internet connection, these devices don't have as much power or purpose. I remember when I was young and I had my Game Boy and all these electronics that would still take our attention. And now we've evolved so much past that. If it doesn't have strong bandwidth, why then we can't watch our 4K videos and it's not worth anything. I think what happened for me when I stepped away from constant interaction with phone is I started to notice those phases of my life when I was most stressed, I was actually most impulsively on my phone. And whether you're justified, you know, I'm checking my work emails or I'm doing something cerebral like playing chess, you know, you end up realizing how detrimental those habits can be when you're in the car and you can't even get off your phone. And it's like, oh, let me play chess while I'm driving. Right. And that's a very destructive habit. It, you're not paying attention enough to the game. You're not paying enough attention enough to the road. And that actually transforms the way that you think in general and an inability to focus and concentrate and a desire to just kind of always let the mind be busy doing something takes us away from that ability to be meditative and reflective and observant and present. So I think we've all been there, right? Whatever it is, you mentioned the weather app, the stocks, 
everyone has their thing. And I think if we can separate that time and, and just allocate a little bit of time of the day for that, rather than making it the impulsive habit that controls us, start to notice that there are things that we're much more present to just being outside and enjoying the actual weather rather than looking at it on an app. I couldn't agree more. And something else that you're pointing about your experience is when you're in a community and they're on like equal terrain in the sense of not having cellular connection, that makes it a lot easier when either you don't have a choice to do something or you're with other people who are choosing not to do something. And when you pointed out the distraction, I think of how I can monitor myself pretty well, but when I'm around other people and I see them on a device, it makes it very tempting to get on a device too. Or it makes you feel a little bit isolated, especially if you're just with one person and they're on a device, the connection is dropped. I know you spend so much time talking and supporting people with their relationships. And I'm curious if you've noticed how relationships can improve when we are more connected and not so reliant or distracted by devices. Yeah, I think there's a great story I could tell. I've been here in Puerto Rico helping some of the locals. And a big thing about what happens here on the island is the power grid, the hurricanes. People go through devastating times with no running water, no electricity. And when Hurricane Maria happened in 2018, it went nine months without electricity. That's nine months without your cell phone. That's nine months without Wi-Fi. That's nine months without email. And while I've heard so many devastating stories about how difficult that time was, I've also heard some pretty magical stories about how everyone in the community started to appreciate being together again and not being on their electronics. Think about five-day detox for me is, is transformative. A nine-month detox, all of a sudden, I, I was talking to a young adult who said they were all leaving each other's notes in each other's mailboxes and telling each other, hey, let's meet at 5 p.m. at so-and-so's house. And everyone would just get a note in their mailbox and gatherings were more connected. They were camping on each other's housetops on their roofs, just enjoying time in nature, enjoying time cooking with a fire source rather than an electricity source. And all of that, I think, in some ways is healing. Not to say we all need to move to the campground and get rid of our electronics, but to balance that appropriately, to have that time. I work with a lot of couples who really talk about one of the major stressors in their life. It's not intentional, but it's just that they're busy. You know, life gets in the way, work, family, pressures, kids. But how much of that busyness is manufactured by us because we're giving access and we think we have to respond to everything right away in a society where We've lost our sovereignty. We've lost our freedom. We've lost our ability to just be there for ourselves because the whole world has access to us. I think 50 years ago, mental health issues were much less about not having my own me time because we had that. Now it's can't go a few minutes without somebody trying to get your attention, whether it's a text, email, an advertisement, a notification or a iPhone software upgrade, but just something is there for you waiting to grab your attention. And I think our attention is one of the most precious commodities that we have that we overlook. And we're seeing it now. Right? Attention is monetized because of the status phase that we're in in society. And really, if people can understand how valuable their attention is and how they're just giving it away to anybody, we can start to manipulate the energy that we bring in our life to the places that need more attention and really just live a more fulfilled life. 
Wow, it's so true. I mean, that attention side of things is a huge reason why I decided to indefinitely pause my relationship with social media because it started to feel really concerning. I feel like it's growing, it's becoming a bit out of hand. As much as there are benefits to using social media, even the term social media doesn't feel like quite the right term anymore because it's not social in the way I want it to be social, I would say. We used to say social network and it was a network of people we could be connected to, have conversations with, support each other with. That's what I want. But it's actually become harder and harder to feel connected to people because of social media. Even taking that time away, first of all, I don't know what's going on in people's lives as much as I used to. And that sometimes feels a little odd to me. I was telling you offline, like, I don't know some of the things that are happening in the world anymore because I'm not as connected to it. I'm not gathering as much information. And that could be with personal relationships too. I had to hear yesterday from my mother on the phone that my cousin is pregnant. And she probably announced that in social media, but I didn't see it. However, it kind of goes back to what you were saying. Instead, it's like the old school way of hearing things where my mother told me something because she probably heard it from someone. And I prefer that. That feels more connected. I would rather get a more direct message from somebody. I would rather get that message in my mailbox and get invited over because the convenience of social media is also an issue for me. It's become so convenient. I feel like it's impacted our connection with one another. Do you feel that too? Absolutely. I think in social media, the one saving grace is we get to connect with so many people in such a quick way, right? When we share our albums and we're caught up with family members and, you know, similar avenues in the past where you send someone a postcard, right? And send mass postcards. And so we did these things in society. Now we just are able to do it much quicker and and much higher resolution. But the downside where connection still is a positive, I think is that we're using it passively and not understanding that largely weaponized in many ways, not always negatively, but as an advertising or marketing tool, sometimes politically, sometimes a lot of fear mongering. There's comparisons and facades and trying to boast and brag about how amazing our vacation is or how delicious our meals look. And we're living this multi-dimensional life in a 2D world now. So with all of that, not to mention the instant gratification and the pleasure kind of addiction pathway and, and pornography and fear tactics and all the things that come up that really are there to grab our attention and keep it. And so we are losing connection. I think we are losing the ability to just tell stories, to just catch up with each other and learn perspectives rather than hop on a message board. And sometimes what ends up happening with those message boards is you hyper-focus on a community that maybe there's only 30 people in the world that agree with this extreme thought that you have. And now you've found your validation in a way where normally society shapes people because you get to mix with so many different opinions and cultures and perspectives. And you talk to your colleagues at the water cooler, and now we don't. We just sit here on video, right? We get together at the family function, there's different opinions. Now we get to just go and either troll the opinions we don't like or align with opinions we like. And there's not a lot of diversity in thought. It's just polarizing more so. So it's not like it's bad. Technology is not bad, right? The application of it is what we have to be careful of. And 
it really is just on all of us to safeguard that. We have a lot of programming within our practice where one of the first things we do is go over electronic hygiene. And we go over notifications on the phone, blue light, sleep hygiene patterns. What are we doing with our electronics right when we wake up and right when we go to bed? Are we putting it away, plugging it into the bathroom instead of on the nightstand? These are the things that are so important. And also using the tools, right? Because every technology is actually has excellent application as well. So can we organize our lives? Can we set reminders to tell the people we care about how much we love them? Can we learn things? Can we be creative? Can we focus on self-care and self-love through our device? And so that's what we're doing with our app and our programs that when people dive into the app, they get to see modules and work on their breath work. And instead of waking up to a world full of stressors, they wake up to a nice meditation. And those are the things that really technology can be used for our advantage as well. That sounds so nice. I want to live in that world. <laughs> I want, it's a lot of work, sadly. It, that's something that I think also breaks my heart about the state of things right now is I think we're often told that technology is going to solve our problems, but it seems that it gets added a lot of problems. And I'm curious if that's come up in your work too. I mean, the fact that you had to add an electronic hygiene element to your work in itself is saying, A, that's often the starting point. We have to get over that obstacle or hurdle or or just move through something to start perhaps a place where we used to start from or to get to the point where we used to start from, if that makes sense. I'm, I'm curious in your work with psychiatry and the whole mental health scope of your work, like, have you noticed a big shift in recent times that now you have something brand new that you have to handle with clients that you didn't have to deal with? In my young career, we've all kind of started learning through this phase where social media was in the forefront and our smartphone we become cyborgs, right? What time in human history? It's a special time that we're in. We can connect with anybody in the world. We have omnipotent knowledge at our fingertips. And so if we zoom out and look at that societally, I don't think it's good or bad or right or wrong. It just is. It's just our evolution as a human species. What is that going to look like in 20 to 40 years is even more interesting when we really do achieve this kind of singularity and technology is not just in our hand, but part of who we are. But I think if you look back to just earlier forms of technology and how that has shifted society, we had to learn from that, right? When the TV came out, it was really cool. It was a special thing that happened. And then all of a sudden we realized, okay, we have these couch potatoes who just sit around and watch TV all day and we all do it. But how many couch potatoes do we even have left? Most people are now just on their phones and you just see the curvature of the cervical spine shifting down as a society as well, right? And so there's these multifaceted evolutionary I think, patterns that are happening that we just need to be present to. And as a psychiatrist, it's my role to talk about these things that are affecting all of us. It's one of the perks of the work is I get to see societally what's impacting us all because seeing 20, 30 people a day allows you to really dive in and say, what is going on on a humanistic level, not just an individual level? So now you look back at the TV and it's almost like, the TV is there to bring the family back together. Like, oh, let's all sit down and watch a program together <laughs> rather than be in our rooms on our phones and computers. And you see these shifts in technology. So again, it's not the technology that's bad, but how do we get ahead of the safeguarding it, making sure that we're not falling into the damaging part of this evolution? I really appreciate the way you're phrasing that and the neutrality that you're approaching it from, I think is really important. That's something I'm trying to lean more in on is I feel like a lot of us want to be prescribed something. We want to be told if something's good or bad for us, right or wrong for us, like that black and white thinking. 
versus maybe the gray area and maybe finding the balance between something that's helpful or hurtful. Changing our perspectives can also be a big shift. And you mentioned how we have so much knowledge at our fingertips. I'm curious how that impacts you because many of us can go and Google our symptoms and self-diagnose ourselves. Sometimes that's helpful. Sometimes maybe not so. What has your experience been like working with people that probably have already done a ton of research on their own before they meet you? Does that hinder your ability to support them? It's a great question. I think the Google age of everyone becoming their own WebMD, it's a beautiful thing, right? This knowledge isn't protected knowledge that only doctors should have, right? Everybody should educate themselves about their health. And ultimately, my role as a physician is just to educate, empower, and guide someone towards making their own healthiest decision. So whatever they've Googled, let's talk about it because clearly you've put in some work. And I actually think that's a positive thing to be able to say, you know, I read a little bit of research. I come to you because you're the professional. Can you help me piece this all together? And the key component is that whatever you read online, it's not about you. It's giant statistical numbers about large populations. And you are a unique individual, right? Has evolved like a snowflake that is unique, you know, towards every other one falling in the sky. And so we have to now look at ourselves and understand rather than trying to put people in a box and say, oh, let me pull up the DSM. You suffer from major depressive disorder. No, that's not really the way that we practice. We try to look at everybody through the biopsychosocial spiritual model and really just understand what are the physical factors that are contributing? What are some of the mental psychological factors? What are some of the environmental things that are happening externally that are affecting you mentally and emotionally? And then our spiritual health, right? Exploring that and understanding our system of beliefs and how we align with these mysteries and wonders and awes of the universe. What do we relate our own beliefs and the way that we think about those things? None of that really can be Google. <laughs> you know, it's like you've got to piece it all together. And so I really enjoy my work. Far less I'm looking at diagnoses and giving people medications, far more. It's almost like artistic exploration of why are we the way we are? This chemical soup that we present, we have these behaviors and we have these thoughts and we have these feelings. Why is that so? And you can't Google that yet. Maybe one day, <laughs> chat GBT, why am I the way I am? They'll give you the answer. I love that you integrated chat GPT because that's where my mind went to. I'm like, AI is so fascinating. But AI is also a great part of this conversation because it is showing the limitations that machine learning has right now. And maybe it will become more sophisticated. And that could be a great tool because you can get answers very quickly. But your role of being able to help each individual find what works for them is really key. And I think many people start with this one-size-fits-all way of approaching life. I mean, in my perspective from the wellness space, especially in the content world, I started to notice how cookie-cutter the advice was. It was like, oh, just do this and you'll get that. It was this formulaic approach to well-being. And I discovered through my personal experience, most of that advice did not work for me. And then I ended up feeling like something was wrong with me or I was failing or I wasn't doing it right because why was it working for others but not me? And someone like you is so refreshing because I need a more customized approach, not just 
what is happening for everybody else. And then I started to wonder how many people are actually served by cookie cutter advice and one size fits all approaches. Is is that really working for some people or most people? Well, we're learning about psychiatry. And, and sometimes when I introduce myself as a psychiatrist, I have to kind of gauge someone's reaction because I get this kind of sideways look like, oh, you're one of those people who are just over prescribing populations and getting everybody hooked on controlled substances. And I get it. I get why people have this feeling that we're overdiagnosing, we're over prescribing, because that was really the prominent tool that we used for the last 50 to 70 years in an industry that's super young, right? 50 to 70 years might sound like a long time, but in medicine, that's a very young industry. You know, cardiology has been around for hundreds of years. And so psychiatry and more so the serotonin hypothesis and all of these things that we have based our care on, they just weren't as factual and correct as we thought, right? We knew they were built on hypotheses. We knew they were built on just trying to guess why things are happening because we don't have a full scientific understanding of the brain, let alone what governs our emotional habits. And psychiatry, I always say the etymology, psyche comes from the Latin word meaning mind, the Greek word meaning soul, and iatry obviously is the study of, iatrist is the healer of. So in many ways, I consider our profession to be healers of the soul. You can't take an MRI or an x-ray of the soul, right? You can't take a blood test and figure out there's some dopamine deficit here, so let's add this medication. So I think we're getting away from what psychiatry used to be. Again, not to make it bad, that's something I struggled with early in my career. You give me a beautiful compliment that I try to look at things in a neutral perspective. And that wasn't always so. I was a rebellious resident when I was doing my psychiatry training. And I, you know, I almost got kicked out of my program a few times just because I couldn't fathom that this is how we're showing up for society. We're locking people in psych wards and basically just getting them out when they tell us, oh, I no longer want to kill myself. And those things were very jading for a young physician to kind of see. Luckily, I was able to really refine my approach. And instead of looking down upon the industry of psychiatry, I looked forward to the growth and evolution and really just started to ride the current for where I was going. And we're starting to see now, hopefully more and more, that it's less of what medicine is. The standard of care of medicine is a disease state model, meaning you have to come in and get diagnosed with a disease than to get help, right? If, if you're not sick, I can't help you. Your insurance won't pay for it. What do I do? It's, this is a disorder treatment algorithm that we work from. Instead, and I think really what psychedelic medicine has taught us is that we can look at everybody through the lens of just enhancing self-exploration, enhancing self-awareness, learning more about ourselves, and in doing so, highlighting the areas of our life that need more attention, that need more care and nourishment, and perhaps just need more balance and harmony. And we get away from the all or nothing thinking, we get away from putting people in a box and assigning labels. And we open up this blank canvas of just getting to know ourselves and getting to know our association with the universe. And with professional guidance and mind expansive medicine sometimes really helps to be able to get out of our own way and open up new possibilities. This is all so cool. <laughs> I feel very grateful and in awe of the work that you're doing and also quite ignorant. I was telling you, I don't have a lot of personal experience with psychedelics. I've only tried one, which were mushrooms about 10 years ago. And I guess I haven't felt that drawn to them. In general, I'm not very drawn to substances and like 
drugs and alcohol don't have that much appeal to me. And I've thought of that as mostly a positive. But then part of me is thinking maybe it's a little bit of a limitation because since I haven't felt very interested in it, I haven't explored a lot. I'm very curious about psychedelics, but not enough to pursue them, I suppose. And I want to learn more about ketamine, which is something I know you specialize in. I don't really know much about it at all. So can we start at the basics of what ketamine is? How do you use it? What do you use it for? What are the benefits? Absolutely. And first, I commend you for not being like most of human history, right? We've always had some kind of substance societally, whether it was the advent of caffeine through coffee and tea in different cultures, whether it was the advent of alcohol thousands and thousands of years ago. There's always been some kind of substances. And what's really interesting is that psychedelics have been there since kind of the age of the dawn of man as well. And we've seen it in most mental health historical study. Usually that shaman, that healer is using some kind of psychedelic substance, usually plant-based, that helps not only for the person, the subject to open up their mind, but in fact, the history of psychedelic medicine, the shaman would take the psychedelic so that their mind would open up and they can understand their subject better and be able to guide them and heal them in a more profound and more spiritually aligned way. So what's really fascinating about all that is that's ancient cultural medicine. And then there was Eastern medicine that had similar approaches. And then we have Western medicine, which is only 100 years old. Rockefeller and Freudian ways have defined our mental health strategies and approach. And Rockefeller was the advent of psychopharmacology of saying we need medications that are regulated. And then Freud came around and said, we need more psychoanalysis. And those two things came together. And now we have modern psychiatry. In the 60s and 70s, ketamine was invented as a molecule for operative anesthesia. And it's actually a derivative of PCP, which can sound really scary. But if you think about PCP in the 50s, is what we used for operations for anesthesia, for sedation, because it actually disconnects your body from your mind. But unfortunately, you have to tie the person down because they also get really aggressive. So that wasn't working in the 50s. And in the 60s, they invented a derivative called ketamine that had the same disconnect from body and mind without the aggression. And this was used in the battlefields. In 1955 to 75, we had the Vietnam War. And interestingly enough, the doctors who were using ketamine on the soldiers observe that afterwards, those soldiers had less of a PTSD response, less stress response compared to others who had not used ketamine. And so in the 60s and 70s, psychiatrists were all over ketamine. And amongst other substances, LSD's creation in the 1900s, you know, psilocybin just being natural and accessible. Carl Jung, one of our founding forefathers of, of modern mental health as well, he had a lot of psychedelic trips in his time. <laughs> if you ever read the Red Book, I'm not even sure he was sober for any of those writings. And so we've seen this in the history. But what's really fascinating and what your listeners may have heard now in society is that it's coming back. Psychedelic medicine has become mainstream in many ways. And it all starts four years ago, 2019. A medication called Spravato came to market. And this is a derivative of ketamine called esketamine. It's a nasal spray indicated for major depressive disorder that's treatment resistant. So for anybody who's tried and failed antidepressants, they get to try nasal spray form of ketamine. And insurance covered it. I can remember back in 2018, I was seeing a patient and he came to me and he said, you know, I just left my psychiatrist. I said, why? He said, he kept trying to give me ketamine. I thought, how negligent, like, who is this person? Should we, should we report him? Like, I didn't know anything about ketamine at the time because it wasn't until 2019 it got FDA approved. 
in that formulation. And when I learned that and started to use it in our offices, it was a night and day difference for a few reasons. One is we were all used to the medication model of take this pill every single day and that's it. Forget about your problems. Things are going to get better. I'll see you in a month. Tell me how it goes. And 30% of those who took that pill usually felt a little bit better. 30% felt worse and 30% kind of were in the middle. And that's generally that one third rule that we've seen that even over time with um, traditional psychotropics, we see like antidepressants have a burnout. Usually after a year or so, that 30% of people that have improved drops to about 10%. And this is sad and unfortunate. And for psychiatrists like myself, for people to come in and put their hope in wanting to feel better, to go home with a medication with a one in 10 chance of them feeling better. If I was a primary care doc and you came in for high blood pressure and I gave you a medication that gave you a one in 10 chance of your blood pressure lowering, you'd probably be really upset with me. And so I understand all of the animosity towards kind of these psychiatric methods, but with psychedelic medicine, namely ketamine, we have this new model that has introduced us to something really fascinating about the brain. Do you remember the old anecdote, don't kill a brain cell, they don't grow back? Does that sound familiar? We used to say that all the time, right? If you drop, if you fall on your head, oh, you killed some brain cells and they're not going to grow back. This is what we thought about the brain. This was just common talk, common knowledge. 10, 20 years ago, we realized this is not true. The brain, like the rest of our body, regenerates and can create new neurons and new pathways. And why this is so important is because psychedelic medicine taught us this, taught us that when you take something like ketamine or psilocybin and you look at a functional MRI, all of a sudden the brain just lights up and you're actually growing new neural pathways. And what happens there is you get to deviate from your normal rigid beliefs of life and you get to see things from a new perspective. Rather than taking a medication every single day to change the chemicals in the brain, this treatment is done once or twice a week. It's experiential. It's something you go through and you get to see your life almost from a more objective perspective. And it's quite meditative at low doses, at high doses. It can become a little pseudo-psychedelic and weird, but the guidance that we provide to go into the session with preparation and breath work and relaxation and to come out of the session with some kind of therapeutic journaling or guidance or conversation really has been a night and day change for the way people deal with the stressors in their life, deal with the traumas in their past, deal with the relationships in their life. And so this is why I'm so excited about this modality and really has become the vast kind of majority of the attention I'm putting into this space. Well, you definitely have me very intrigued and excited. <laughs> I'm like, I want to try this right now. But there's then the question mark. Okay, let's say I'm interested. I can vouch for that. And maybe the listener is feeling that way too. Feeling curious. Then where do you start? Because is it at a point where only certain uh, medical professionals like yourself are specializing this and offering this? Or is it widely available? What's the accessibility for the average person right now? And of course, that's going to depend where you live, I imagine. So where are the barriers and how does someone navigate that? It's such an important question. And I studied public health and epidemiology at Johns Hopkins. This is a big part of my practice is not only just helping people in maybe my community or in an affluent population, but to be able to help everybody. And so that's been one of the kind of pillars of our practice is to say, whatever we're doing as far as care, we can't disclude anyone. So when Spravato came out, it was something that was pretty cool because your insurance covers it. And you have to qualify, though, meaning you have to have tried and failed antidepressants. I get a lot of people that come to me and say, I don't want to try antidepressants. Can you please try something else with me? And so they wouldn't qualify for that. Their insurance would say, no, we're not going to pay for this 
$200,000 medication until you try some of these other ones that are cheaper first, unfortunately. So if your insurance doesn't cover it, then you're out of pocket. And then it becomes really expensive and inaccessible. So with that, I started to think about, all right, how can we actually bring this ketamine therapy modality and this healing to a much greater population? And so through COVID, there was an exemption where you didn't have to meet your patient in person to be able to write them a controlled substance. And so if it was for their mental health, if there was transportation issues, you can't get to the office, all these things that were happening in COVID opened up more access. So we created a company called Better You. And Better You specializes in the at-home ketamine therapy model, where you actually check in with your psychiatric provider online. You have all your questions answered. You have all your medical review done, your psychiatric review done to make sure you're a good candidate because there are people who are not a good candidate for this treatment. And so we do all of that screening. We touch base with your primary care physician if we need to. And from there, there's a whole team of people to hold your hand and guide you. If you're new to this modality, you work with an integration guide who checks in with you and makes sure that your space is prepared. There's a common cliche called set and setting when you're getting into this type of work where you have to have the right mindset going into it and you have to have the right environment, the right setting to be able to feel safe and and go through the healing and growth and the whole journey ahead. So we have an integration guide that preps all of that. We have the member portal. They can log into the app and learn how to actually start the work before they do their first treatment. Medication comes in the mail with a blood pressure monitor, a meditation mask, headphones. So it's a very intentionally guided process. And then you have your peer support, someone in your family, in your house, a roommate, a friend, a loved one who can hold space and sit with you and they go through our training to understand how they can be there for you. And then you do your treatment. It's an oral absorption. You take a lozenge. It's like a little candy. You hold it in your mouth for about 15, 20 minutes. And then afterwards, it absorbs through the mucosal membranes. You could just spit it right out. You have your eye mask, your headphones, and you really go on this peaceful, meditative journey. And it lasts about 30, 45 minutes, maybe an hour. And then afterwards, you come back to, and what so many people relate is they just feel this kind of nervous system reset. They feel refreshed. They feel relaxed. And you can just see it on their face. It almost just looks like the tension has melted off. And then as we gain more and more experience, once or twice a week for one, two, three months, you start to do some of the programming before and after the treatments. And you start to rewire the unhealthy thought patterns that we all hold, the unhealthy behavioral and emotional patterns. And you start to really imprint and cement those new neural pathways through journaling, through talk therapy, through self-reflection. And that starts to become the new you. And so this is the journey. If anybody's interested, it's as simple as finding a practitioner like myself, finding a company like ours who is bringing this work to a very accessible place. Prior to that also, you know, there's infusion clinics, IV clinics, where you come in, you either get an injection of ketamine or put it in the vein. These are expensive. When they started 10, 20 years ago, sometimes $1,500 of treatment. Now I see them maybe about $750 a treatment. We offer them for about $500 based in different markets for people who still want to come into the office. Our treatments at home have dropped down to about $100, $120 per session. And so whilst that still rules out some people, I get it, like not everybody can still afford $100 a session. It's much cheaper than the $500, $750, $2,000 that it used to be. And we're just finding ways more and more to be there for others. We started a foundation so that people can apply for a scholarship if they can't afford the care. And that really is the goal. So as long as you don't have uncontrolled cardiovascular risk, like high blood pressure, as long as you don't have uncontrolled seizures, as long as you're not psychotic or acute and manic, you know, those are the things that we look out for. Pregnant, planning or breastfeeding, 
Now, there are some things that we have to be careful about, but for 70 to 80% of the population, I would say they're healthy enough to give this a try and they don't have to be sick. There doesn't have to be anything wrong with you. I don't think there's anything wrong with any of us. You know, you don't have to be diagnosed with some kind of disorder. Come in as long as we can find some appropriate diagnosis, like some form of anxiety or depression. That's the standard of care, PTSD. Then we can say, hey, let's see what else this opens up for your life. And instead of focusing on what's wrong with you, we start to focus on what's right with you. Well, you've sold me. Sign me up. This sounds so cool. I love the way you outlined it, by the way. You answered like every possible question, including your transparency with the cost, which I think is top of mind for a lot of people. And I think you mentioned there's that access point of someone feeling like they can't afford it. But it actually reminds me of other therapeutic things that I might spend money on, like a massage. Right now, my favorite massage practitioner or body worker, I would put it, it's about $150 per session. And it's therapeutic. It's something that's giving me physical relief, maybe working on some of the emotional release as well. But it's actually in the context of something like that, a pretty affordable treatment. And you can really approach that as, okay, what am I spending money on right now? Where's my money going towards What are my priorities? What do I need to work on? And I love that you offer the scholarship. That's just so heartwarming and important too, because some people, that is a ton of money and not something that they can spend at all. Like it just, it might not be a matter of when, it's just not available. I would love to know too about the Puerto Rican experience, because this sounds like this is reaching a broader part of the population, like you mentioned. But what about people that want to come do? A multi-day experience with you. Tell me what that looks like. Right. So there are a lot of different levels of care. And while I think that the at-home model and the cocoon and comfort of your own home is always a really fantastic way to start this work, it's a very gentle introduction to psychedelic therapy. Sometimes there's greater benefit when we get to leave our daily routines and habits, be somewhere beautiful and peaceful, submerge in nature, and really kind of reconnect in almost a spiritual way as well. Doing the work Myself, very candidly, I talk about I've gone through some anxious spells and ketamine has helped me really reset and remind me what's important in my life. In this line of work, there are so many just legal hurdles and different work conflicts and situations. And sometimes that gets the priority that gets my mind share and I get anxious, right? When I do the work myself, especially in a beautiful place where I can step away from those work stressors and those habitual patterns that really are stressful and overwhelming at times. It allows you to prioritize what's important. And for me, anytime I'm stressed out, it just brings to the surface that all I really need to be fulfilled is to be able to give back and help others, to focus on that love and compassion and empathy. And these tend to be these humanistic things that come up when we leave our society, we leave our electronics, we leave our daily work, we end up at the side of the river after a psychedelic immersive experience. There's really just nothing left but understanding how beautiful and amazing the world is and how connected everything is. And this, in some ways, there's a similar analogy. You don't have to go to a jungle retreat. You can just go on vacation, right? Get away for the weekend and all of a sudden you just feel refreshed and reset and renewed. You can go camping, right? Just a few miles away from your home, probably even, and find a nice campground and just be out of that daily grind. There is a much more grandiose version of this that's coined the overview effect for astronauts who leave the Earth. And then they say when they go into outer space and they look back down on the Earth, 
there is just this spiritual feeling that overcomes them that just shows them from a zoomed out lens what humanity really is and what this ecosystem that we live in, how it's all connected. And, and it's just something that's described by astronauts as once in a lifetime, an experience that shifted the way they saw life, that they saw the world, they saw themselves. This can be done and just the power of a medication. And so it's really interesting. People who have a lot of advanced work in meditation, transcendental breath work, you know, this is what you're achieving. You're achieving this kind of very observant like state of mind. A lot of them come to me and they say, this feels like a cheat code. It feels like everything I've been practicing on to become a very good meditator, all I had to do is just try a low-dose ketamine session. And my answer is, if it's available and it's the benefits outweigh the risks, like we should all try to find that way of meditatively looking at our lives from a new perspective. So we can enhance that by being in nature, submerged. It really just advances the ability to come back to our life and interact with those same stressors in a much healthier way. Absolutely. And having that guidance and structure, I think, is a big key. You did mention like vacations. As soon as you said that, I thought, I feel like the average person goes on vacation and it's really hard to disconnect or it's so tempting to jam pack your vacation with things to do. I think about this actually each weekend. I've tried to set a boundary of no work for myself and also realizing I want to rest on the weekend. I don't want to jam pack it full of personal things. And I've done that a few times recently and thought, oh my gosh, the weekend's already over. I didn't really rest. Now I'm jumping back into my intensive week. And where did that time go? But sometimes I I just truly need to disconnect. And that's really challenging without boundaries, without guidance. I would say though, since you mentioned camping, there's a little bit of a difference there because I got into camping three years ago and it's a whole different experience than what I would usually consider a vacation. Vacations to me would be like going somewhere to someone's house or going to a hotel. But camping, it's really hard to feel distracted because you're generally, I mean, I guess all camping is in nature. And there's often boundaries there. Like most campsites have quiet hours. You have to be quiet after 10 p.m. And you might not have as much access to light. So you get to experience your rhythm, your sleep rhythm in a different sense because you're not sitting in front of a computer, ideally. You're probably after sunset wondering, well, there's really nothing else to do except look at the stars and then go to sleep. And that has a huge impact certainly has for me. And I'm I'm glad that you threw that in there. (laughs) And just how wonderful the experience you're creating sounds. The closest I've ever had to that was going on a retreat last year in Costa Rica, where it was also in the jungle and right by the ocean. So we had the therapeutic impact of being either next to or in the ocean, being in the jungle and all the different sounds. And yet with that, there is still Wi-Fi. In Costa Rica, I think that might have been part of my data plan for my cell phone companies. I think I was still able to use everything like normal. And even though there were benefits, it was really hard to disconnect. So your experience sounds a little bit more powerful in that sense of like, when you're forced to disconnect, maybe it's easier to get the benefits of it. Yeah, totally agree. And Again, unfortunately, not everybody has that luxury, right? We have kids, we have work, we have things that we have to 
constantly check for. And so many of us think that we can't turn our phones off for an hour, let alone a day. And it only takes a Category 5 hurricane to come through and take out electricity for nine months for people to remember how special it is to actually not have that electricity and go back to the most beautiful show in the world is just looking at the sky at night, you know, and telling stories over fire. Those are the things that what stood out from what you told, from what you just said was getting back to our rhythms. And I don't think we talk about that enough. We have so many rhythms that are important for us. I mean, just look at life, the way that the sun patterns our days, the way that the moon patterns our waves, right? Like all of these are rhythms that just happen in nature, the seasons. And we've gone away from humanistic rhythms that are so important. The biggest one is our circadian rhythm, falling asleep when the sun goes down, waking up with the sun. It's not really realistic to most people. Being out here in the jungle, there's not much to do when the sun goes down. So you get back to that circadian rhythm. You get back to social rhythms of just gathering for meals together, gathering for hikes together. And you get back to spiritual rhythms where spirituality is a big part of our medicine, but we don't talk about religion or preach anything. It's just to hold space for everybody's own private and intimate exploration. And to just be able to tell a non-denominational prayer together. A lot of society has lost that ability to just align with speaking out to the world in gratitude and being able to clear our minds and purify our hearts by just holding hands and sharing a mantra aloud that is just beautiful and allows us to get back into those rhythms. I think when it comes to mental health, we're getting away from the serotonin hypothesis. We're getting away from take this pill, it's going to fix everything. And we're really understanding it's the habitual things that happen every day. And that starts with our core, who we are, why we are. And that's the work that you don't need to go to a jungle retreat. You don't need to hop in a spaceship and look at Earth from you know miles and miles away. You can really just have a deep meditation. And if you're not a good meditator, you can have a low dose ketamine session and get that same reset, get that same ability to just disconnect from those patterns that are holding you down a little bit that are just clouding your vision and start to create the rhythms for yourself. I couldn't think of a better way to end our conversation than that note, because it just summarizes everything that you're passionate about and that you shared today and really leaves us on a note of, okay, here are our options. Which one is going to work best for you? And that's Really, what I feel like your approach is to care is figuring out what we have and which one we're going to start with, which one is going to give us the results that we really want. And I think so many people want to feel reconnected, regrounded, re-rhythmed. I don't know if that sentence structure or that phrasing works so well, but but maybe re-rhythm is <laughs> is a new way of looking at it, right? Getting back into those rhythms that are more innate to us and less external. That's certainly what I'm after. I think as we started this conversation off with, so easy to get disconnected to ourselves because of all this external noise. And I love technology. I'm so grateful for it. But I've recently started to set those boundaries because I want to get focused within so then I can use technology in a way that really aligns with me and not the other way around where technology is dictating everything I'm feeling on the inside 
And meditation is such a beautiful tool for us. And it sounds like ketamine can be so powerful and spending time in nature as well as one of the greatest healers. And you've covered it all today. I feel the impact of just speaking with you. And I hope the listener has had a similar experience just listening. You have a comforting, peaceful, and also, like I said, neutral way of approaching life that just opens up so many doors and helps us find the path that's going to work for us as individuals. So thank you so much for what you've shared here today and the work that you do in your day-to-day life. Yeah, absolutely. I love what I do. I feel like it's such a privilege. I was given a lot of love in my life. I was given a lot of attention. And when we do trauma counseling and we help people heal, a lot of that work brings up inner traumas and things of ourselves. So I think a lot of us need to go through our own work, but I was so kind of privileged growing up that all the love I was given, I, I just feel like it's kind of my responsibility to keep sharing that. And if we can lead with love, empathy, and compassion, if we can use that as medicine to actually be loving to each other. And when you go see your doctor, you feel that compassion. That's the care that I think we all need. And often in medicine, especially, you just kind of feel like you're being herded around through the system. And so I think being able to connect with someone who's holding space for you so that ultimately you can hold space for yourself and increase that self-awareness and really increase that self-love. I always say our relationship with the world begins with our relationship with ourselves. And so that's the work. And I, I would just encourage anybody who's thinking about maybe venturing into this kind of mental health journey, whether it's through just journaling and meditation and self-care whether it's through seeing a professional, a therapist, a psychiatric provider, whether it's dabbling into the psychedelic medicine, whatever that path is, we like to just meet everyone where they are and kind of safely guide them to just more education so they can make that decision and find really that fulfillment that they're looking for. So thank you for having me on just being able to talk about these things. I think it's so important for us to be able to connect and understand what's important, remind ourselves that just that time away that time away from our stressors and our electronics and all the worries that are manufactured can allow us to build that time together with ourselves, people we love, with our universe. And that really is how we help people you know, get better. Again, in awe of how you phrase it. And for anyone else who's feeling that way and wants to get in touch with Dr. Sam Zand, I will put the link to his website in the description as well as in the show notes because he does have a variety of offerings. So Do you offer consultations like as a starting point for someone trying to figure out what path they might want to take with you? Absolutely. If anybody wants to reach out and have just a free consultation with one of our care concierge, it would be just educational, not clinical, you know, just to kind of learn, ask questions. And then you can go ahead and sign up to see a clinician, whether it's the psychedelic therapy journey through the at-home ketamine program with Better You, or it's just general, what we call outpatient mental health, right? Just bread and butter working on our emotional and mental health. Our company, Anywhere Clinic, can help with any of those needs, whether it's therapy, med management, or just holistic strategies. And if anybody wants to make the journey out to Puerto Rico, we have our Metamorphosis Resort where we can come and do the deep immersive work. That's such a great name too, Metamorphosis. I love that. Well, I will link to it so it's easy for anyone who wants to take that next step And that'll be in two places. One is in the description right below where your podcast player is. And two is in the show notes where you can find a variety of all these different links and anything else we've addressed today, which is at wellevator.com. 
That's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R dot com. Thanks again, Sam, for this wonderful conversation. So grateful for your time today. Absolutely. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening and getting out of your comfort zone with us today. For show notes and more high-performance resources to help you thrive, go to wellevator.com. That's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com. 